Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm the Senior Media Editor at Digiday. I'm Kaylee Barber, Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Kamiko McCoy, Senior Marketing Reporter here at Digiday. And Kamiko, you have a new title now in addition to Senior Marketing Reporter. Uh, yes, Senior Marketing Reporter and um, new co-host of the Digiday Podcast. Kamiko will be Kaylee's new co-host. I am going to be stepping away from the Digiday podcast and couldn't think of a better person to have uh, be the new co-host of the podcast. Thank you so much. I am incredibly excited. Um, I think this is my second Digiday podcast um, that I'm doing. The first one was The Return, if you guys recall, last year when everybody was headed back to the office and we had a little pandemic. Um, so this is this is an exciting opportunity and I'm happy to join you guys. And it's not just the fact that you previously hosted another Digiday podcast, um, but it's also the fact that you're going to be bringing a lot of new topics to this podcast. Um, we, I think, historically have been very focused on publishers and media companies. Um, you know, Tim and I would get a little bit into like programmatic advertising and, uh, you know, like privacy and things like that. But Kimiko, your beat is the marketing advertising side of Digiday. And I think there is a lot to cover. Um, so I guess maybe starting out with like a couple of your areas of coverage, what your beat really encompasses to maybe prime the audience about what they can expect from your guests. Yeah. Um, in addition to bad jokes, you can expect marketing and advertising um, insights from me. The bulk of what I cover is kind of where marketers and advertisers are spending their dollars and the strategy as to how those dollars are spent. Um, some of the most exciting things that we're covering right now is Q4, looking at how inflation and things are impacting how marketers are spending their dollars, new social media platforms, and then retail media and opportunities um, to get in front of people. There are more ways to market and advertise to people than ever. Um, and with marketing budgets under more scrutiny than ever, given inflation and things like this, um, there are a lot of choices that had to be made. So I am sure that there will be no limit um, to, for coverage plans for us here for the Digiday Podcast. Yeah, and I'm really excited to like hear your conversations with the guests because not only you know do you bring the marketing expertise to the podcast now, but also I think you're, I don't feel like it's a stretch to say you're our most prolific profiler on staff at Digiday. And so I feel like the nature of the conversations you'll be having with the guests will be maybe a bit different than, you know, some of the other conversations that can be so like topic centric, but maybe not get at the guest as much. I appreciate such kind words. <laughs> I try really hard for 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 to make a connection um, with the people that I'm talking to. I know sometimes when it comes to marketing strategy and marketing spend, um, people tend to clo hold their their cards close to the chest. Um, and the more that you're able to get to know them and have a personable human to human conversation, they're a lot more willing to share things um, with you. So hoping to be able to kind of bring a little bit of that to the podcast and make those conversations really enjoyable and informational to our listeners. Yeah. And speaking of more informational, uh, you recently had a WTF go up on our website on the Fediverse. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Which I think is touching on some of that like social media platform topic, the kind of new emerging area of like creator centric marketing. Um, and I believe that's going to be your first topic for the Digiday podcast for your first interview, correct? Yes, it is. I'm super excited about that. Um, the Fediverse, it 
speaks to the social fragmentation that's happening in the social media stratosphere right now, which I think is one of the most exciting topics. I actually came from a social media strategist background, which makes this really near and dear to to my heart. Um, The idea that social media strategists have to kind of be everywhere at once and kind of the silos that social media platforms work within. Um, I don't want to give too much away ahead of of our episode, um, but I think what's most interesting about the Fediverse and the best way that I can probably describe it and how it's been described to me is that think of it like an email server. So instead of me only be able to talk to Kaylee on Instagram and only being able to talk to Tim on now X, um, the Fediverse allows everybody to communicate everywhere. Um, any app or platform that has joined the Fediverse can all speak to one another. Same way that I can reach anybody on AOL to Google to Hotmail and any of the other email platforms. So it's it's really exciting. We've got um, an, an agency executive joining us to kind of walk us through that. Um, so it'll be a really good conversation and talk about the perspective of what this means to marketers and advertisers as they are constantly looking to find communities um, online. Awesome. That sounds really, yeah, the Fediverse, I get skeptical. <laughs> I get skeptical of a lot of things, but the, the Fediverse, just because there's been such a history of the platforms trying to keep their users pretty self-contained or using another platform to get users in the first place. And then at some point, you know, decide like, uh, what was it? Instagram did this to Twitter. God, this was like what over a decade ago, but build up the Instagram user base off of Twitter accounts, if I'm not getting that right. And then at some point kind of cut that off. Do you see any friction like that coming for the Fediverse? Love that question. Um, Yes, already. There, not long ago, Threads, Instagram's um, rival to, I'm going to keep doing this, it's X, it's not Twitter, their their rival, um, made this big announcement that they were going to join the Fediverse, which is probably the, the most interesting aspect of that is that it comes with Meta's infrastructure. There's a lot of concern that it also comes with Meta's ads um, and and oversight um, for something that was built around the idea of ad-free communities. Um, While there are a lot of perks to it, I think there's a lot of hang up. And that's if Threads even goes through with it. There's still not like a a deadline or an announced date as to when that'll be completed. So everybody's kind of waiting. Well, those in the Fediverse are waiting at, you know, the edge of their seats. I don't know about the rest of us, given the the WTF explainer that I did. (laughs) We're still figuring out what it is. Yeah. And so I, in the past, Tim and I have done the creator series, which takes place for a month in the springtime. And I imagine that we're going to keep doing that. Um, but your perspective on the creator, like influencer marketing side of things is also something I'm really curious to dig into with that series and beyond. And imagine that there's some kind of link to the Fediverse. I'm, well, I'm not really sure if there are creators there, like actively yet. I don't really know. I have to read your WTF and listen to your episode next week. But ahead of that, I am curious, like your perspective around influencer marketing, if there's been any significant changes or or topics of interest that um, you're planning to bring to the podcast to dig into how that niche of, of marketing is growing is, I don't know, doing in general. Influencer marketing at this point has just become a staple in 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 marketing spend, which I think is 
I'm I'm curious about the future of myself, just this idea of like everybody becoming a marketer. I mean, everybody becoming an influencer and the idea of authenticity. Um, you know, you'll, our sister publication and even us has covered pretty extensively the idea of like de-influencing in this chase behind the idea of authenticity and what that means for influencers um, at the end of the day. Um, recently, I did a piece looking at the idea of virtual influencers. I don't know, and God help you if you do know, Michaela, um, Lil Michaela and her her friends, um, the, the idea of virtual influencers. So- at some point, I think there will be a convergence of AI and influencers. I don't know if they will all, you know, be like, you know, iRobot or anything like that. But as far as like the inner workings and the mechanisms of how influencers are able to manage themselves, I think it'll be inter- interesting using AI. And then on top of that, they're becoming their own powerhouses, media companies, businesses, and things like that. Um, so it'll be really interesting to kind of keep an eye on like, um, one, the money that continues to be shelled out in that space is just skyrocketing, but also how these influencers are growing beyond working just, you know, with brands from time to time to really become companies themselves. The AI influencer thing's so weird to me. Like in some respects, it makes sense, especially those who have like a decade worth of YouTube videos to be able to train AI on. But at the same time, it's just like, is that just going to be a worse version? Like um, there's this one YouTuber, Quebble Cop, if I'm not mistaken, who like announced, I think a couple weeks ago, that he was just going to be doing like an AI version of himself moving forward. And there was, it was pretty polarizing. And I feel like he might have reversed tack on that or kind of changed the, I feel like in the, in Colin Samir's newsletter, the published press, there was something talk that sounded like there was a shift there, but it's just, I, I get that it'll be easier and certainly makes things easier, but I also wonder how much it makes things worse. There have been some strange happenings with AI and uh, influencers in the story. Two things that I mentioned that were really interesting. One, I think, was like a YouTube, a YouTuber, an AI created YouTuber that was like a robot on on screen, essentially, um, that like got in trouble for like saying some comments that were disparaging and things like that on YouTube. And I think they got banned for a little while. Um, but the one that that made me giggle the most, um, was a, a influencer that created an AI powered chatbot um, to be like a, uh, an AI girlfriend um, oh, to, yeah. to, yeah, you remember the story, AI girlfriend online <laughs> and things turned real dark, real fast. So, you know, as with all aspects of AI, I think it's something that everybody's super interesting in, but there is a hesitancy to kind of go full in just because we don't have, there's still a black back, black box, excuse me, element to it. Yeah. And also how advertisers are going to respond to some of these more um, creative uses of AI. I can't imagine a YouTube channel that is primarily an AI creator will be necessarily brand safe if you're a big concern around uh, advertising as fraud. So I don't know. I am very curious to see how much ground AI creators or influencers can get if they're also not really being funded by advertisers as much as influencer marketing typically gets you know, dollars from advertisers. This is true. And part of the whole reason that influencers, I think, got popular in the first place is because of authenticity. How authentic is an AI-created, generated um, influencer? I'm also wondering, like, whether somehow AI influencers could be more palatable to brands, If the idea being that you maybe can control what they say even more. Like, you have 
you know, brand just has a keyword, you know, block list that gets update, you know, uploaded to the model. And then you also don't have to worry about, you know, Logan Paul, David Dobrik type situations where like the AI influencer, if it's just contained to their YouTube videos and maybe an X account and like you can really control what they say there, you don't have to worry about them doing something completely tasteless or just, you know, discriminatory um, out in kind of their everyday life. True. You could have made for advertising influencers coming up next. I feel like that sounds ideal for brands personally to me, terrifying. Yeah, very dystopian, but isn't everything. And also, is the uncanny valley going to come into play? Are consumers going to be very off-put by, who was the name, Lil Michaela? I think I remember seeing that one. Yeah, I mean, is there an appetite? I think comes down to it at the end of the day. I think that's still that what's up for debate. A handful of years ago, when Lil Michaela got really big, um, there, there were a ton, there was a ton of interest. Um, but I think since then, since the advent of TikTok has made influencer becoming an influencer a lot more seamless um, than it was. I think back when you had like YouTube and Instagram, it seemed more advantageous to go for being a creator or an influencer. But now it's it's so mainstream and whatnot that I think it's a lot more attainable. Um, people think of it that way. So I don't know how much of their of an appetite there would be for an influencer, for brands being able to control a narrative and have like this cut and dry cookie cutter person that's a spokesperson, I think would be the creme de la creme of advertising. Um, but, you know, I think there will always be space for for human oversight. Um, and this kind of plays into that. So we've talked Fediverse, we've talked influencer marketing. Kamiko, you also mentioned, you know, just Q4 trends. Anything else that folks, listeners should be on the ear out for? Um, when it comes to what you're looking to really prioritize? Probably the social media platforms themselves, um, going back to the idea of the fragmentation that we're seeing in all of the places that marketers and advertisers are expected to be. We've got a close eye on things that are developing, especially threads, um, which has made, well, per per the threads team, has made a little bit of a comeback and could p- potentially compete with X, um, given all the missteps and things like that. But Essentially, this idea of like, where are marketers finding community? Um, it's such a big idea to tap into culture. Um, and with X kind of waning, Thread's not, you know, billing out to be what, what it thought it would be. Um, you know, where are those cultural moments happening and marketers being able to to tap into them? Meta is making a case that Thread's is on a comeback. What's the basis for that? Essentially, um I don't know if you remember when they first made the announcement, like, oh yeah, Threads has taken a hit, but you know, this is this is all part of the plan. It's 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 happening to um it's the the initial drop-off, and you know, we hope that it'll kind of steady out and whatnot. Um, there's been a couple of news reports that have circulated the idea that there's they have the propensity still to make a bounce back. They're releasing new features. I think they were working on search um, and a handful of other things. Um, I think we saw the same thing with Blue Sky as soon as X took a tumble. People surge to spill X and whatnot. X is still having problems. Threads is releasing new um, developments. So I think, you know, should the perfect storm happen again, we could see it make a, the, the perfect comeback and not join the, the digital graveyard okay. of social media apps. That's interesting because like this morning, Insider Intelligence put out their forecast around Threads and gloomy to say the least. We'll see. I myself um, feel like the, the engagement just... Um, for some people, it has been like skyrocketing, just, you know, depending on the audience that you're going after. I think for journalists and whatnot, there's been a little bit of apprehension because the community hasn't been built the same way that it was 
on X. Albeit yeah. a hellscape at times, it was our home. I think that's been my biggest kind of barrier to using threads earnestly is all of my followers really have followed me over from Instagram, which is definitely not a platform I use as a journalist. Um, it is a personal account. And so a lot of my followers there do not care about my uh, Digiday reporting, which is sad to say. But um, therefore, my engagement is very low when I try and post on threads. Exactly. I'm like, what do you guys mean you don't want to read about the Fediverse? You don't want to know about cute far holiday spending? Please. You don't want to know about made for advertising sites? Guys, come on. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I'm very excited to start listening to both of your episodes going forward um, as a listener. So, Kamiko, best of luck. Kaylee, as always, best of luck. And, um, and thank you, Tim. You've been a great co-host over the past almost three years, four, two and a half, something like that. It's been a while, but... Time flies when yeah, you're having it's fun. Been... <laughs> so true. So true. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm Kamiko McCoy, your new co-host of the Digiday podcast. Before we finish today's episode, I want to give you a peek into Digiday's first narrative podcast, The Return, a show about the return to the office after the global pandemic of 2020. The first season was hosted by me and followed Atlanta-based advertising agency Fitzgo as it navigated COVID-19 safety protocols, COVID cases, and the push to change the future of work. I hope you like it. The second season, hosted by Chloe Callahan from Digiday Media's Work Life, follows Gen Z as they enter the workforce for the first time and will be available soon. The time is 9.27 and I'm about to make the long commute of going to work. Just kidding. That long commute is only like three feet from my bed to my computer. Remember commuting to the office? Most days, we'd all wake up early, put on real work clothes, maybe some makeup, and fight traffic for an hour. That routine looks a lot different now that COVID has made remote work mainstream. What was an hours-long affair became a matter of rolling out of bed and opening your laptop. However, as the world starts to reopen, things are about to change again. I'm Kamika McCoy, and this is The Return, a Digiday podcast where we explore what a return to the office looks like for one advertising agency adapting to the new, not-quite-post-pandemic normal. The pandemic shuttered office doors across the country, ushering in the era of remote work for many, including us here at Digiday. I'm actually recording this podcast from my apartment in Atlanta and working with our audio producer, Sarah Patterson, who lives in New York. For sound quality purposes, I'm sitting in my closet next to several pairs of jeans that haven't seen the light of day since COVID first reared its ugly head. Breaking news tonight, Americans on virtual lockdown to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Residents in the country's largest city, New York, told a shelter-in-place order could be coming within the next 48 hours. The San Francisco that was two years ago. I remember hearing the news of COVID-19. I checked my email where the company that I was working for at the time told us that we'd be working remotely until this thing blows over. Except it didn't blow over. And it still hasn't. I was living in Brooklyn at the time, where I shared a two-bedroom apartment with a roommate. 
CDC guidelines and mask mandates were confusing, and public transportation all of a sudden seemed too public. But luckily, with my job suddenly changing to remote, it's not like I had to commute anywhere. The Pew Research Center reported that in 2019, pre-pandemic, only 20% of people surveyed said that they were doing their jobs from home. By the end of 2020, that number jumped to 71%. Of that 71%, most of them started working remotely because, like me, their offices were closed until this blew over. Two years later, that number has dropped slightly as companies have pushed staff to return to the office in the name of company culture. COVID numbers were down, vaccinations were widely available, restrictions had been lifted, for now, and employers are beckoning employees to go back to in-person work. Now, Pew Research reports that about 60% of us are still working remotely, including Bryce Burton, director and editor at Fitzco Creative and Media Company. Fitzco is a nearly 40-year-old advertising agency here in Atlanta. They've worked with brands like French's Mustard, AHA Sparkling Water, and Coca-Cola, doing everything from social content strategy to media planning. They're also the agency that we'll be following for this podcast. Obviously, I remember it, uh, you know, like it was yesterday. <laughs> uh, I was actually shooting uh, in our studio at the office for Checkers. We were doing um, uh, a photo shoot for their French fries or whatever it was. And uh, they were like, yeah, it's like everybody's going home or we're closing down the office. And like everybody else, we thought this was going to last. I was like, surely it's going to, I thought it was going to last, you know, a couple of days, you know, and everybody's going to come back. And then it, you know, then a week happened and two weeks happened and a month happened. Bryce is a military bred husband and father of three. In the before times, his days revolved around dropping the kids off at school and navigating Atlanta traffic. Bryce lives in Covington, Georgia, which is about 40 miles away from the Fitzco office. That's at least $400 in gas every month, averaging about $5,000 a year just to go to work. Add in lunch every day, he's spending up to $10,000 just to work in an office. Prior to the pandemic, it could take him over an hour to drive to the Fitzco office. But in March of 2020, that changed for Bryce, as it did for many. Fitzco and other offices moved to remote work, Water cooler chats with coworkers became Slack messages. Dropping the kids off at school became homeschooling at the dinner table. And the line between work life and home life became non-existent. You know, I'm in meetings. They have to be in meetings with their teachers. And I mean, it was chaos. I'll just say it was chaos. Um, it was not fun. And I, I learned very, very quickly that I did not want to be a teacher <laughs> ever. <laughs> uh, especially at that age, just because I can't. Like, I, I, it's not that I don't have the patience. It's just a matter of, like, the, the way that things are being taught now are totally different than the way I learned them. So it's like I'm, I'm, I'm going to school with them, essentially, while trying to maintain performance, you know. And that's something that I think everybody learned is, is that the work didn't necessarily suffer. It was just the people doing the work suffered, you know. Like, it, the work still got done. Um, it was just a matter of how it was completed. And the people doing the work did suffer. Across the industry, major agencies like RGA and Wyden and Kennedy laid off at least 10% of their staffs. Budgets got tighter, hitting marketing and creative departments where it hurts. In the advertising industry, agencies changed their travel policies, pressing pause on work trips. 
the industry's most sought-after events, like South by Southwest or Can Lion, were postponed or even canceled. Marketing messages shifted to center around COVID-19 safety, letting shoppers know that we're in this together. And the world's sporting events are postponed or canceled. But whatever it is, we'll find a way. Why do we fly? We fly because people need to get home. And life-saving equipment needs to get to the lives that need saving. Essential supplies to help families and communities. So Unilever, the makers of Dove, Hellman's, Vaseline, and more, is donating millions of products to Feeding America and directly... Fitzgo had just moved into an office with industrial decor on the west side of the city. For the past two years, they've worked together in that office for just 45 days. I'm Dave Fitzgerald, CEO of Fitzco. I started this company in 1983 in sold it to Interpublic in 1998 and bought it back again uh, two years ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic. I thought uh, we'd be out for a week or two as soon as schools, you know, were back open. In fact, I was joking this morning, I went to Costco at the beginning of this thing and bought, you know, you can only buy two years of live everything in Costco. I said, I'll never use all this, this hand sanitizer. Like many of us, Dave had no idea what would come with the pandemic. I asked him about the moment he realized his staff wouldn't be coming back to the office anytime soon for fear of spreading the virus. Yeah, that was the biggest part was the unknowns and um, the fear. But again, it was, we'll we'll check in next week and see what's happening. And then then I guess by May, we're saying this is going to be a long haul. But we'd already learned very quickly how to do this business uh, remotely. If you'd asked me January 2020 whether you could do what we do for a living remotely, I would have said that's a very naive question. <laughs> no, we have to sit, we have to collaborate. We're a collaborative business, we don't like banking or insurance. Uh, but we found out that we can do it. I don't think we can do it as well. Um, a couple of things you can't do as well, but we can get it done. And they did get it done, that is. When I first started working from home, I didn't miss the office. I still don't. I've got everything I need here. I bought a small desk off of Amazon to make a cozy working nook in the corner of my apartment. It's stacked with books, plants, an external keyboard for my laptop, and my favorite mug. It's peaceful and quiet, outside of the occasional Slack notification. What about you? What does your work-from-home setup look like? It may be a proper desk. And if you're lucky, it's one of those ones that converts into a standing desk. And maybe you have a ring light for a flawless video conferencing call. That's now. When we first started working from home, everyone was scrambling to figure out what that looked like. There were a lot of laptops on dining room tables and Zoom calls where someone was always talking on mute. For parents, life with remote work was even more complicated. On top of all of that, schools were closed, meaning the kids... We're at home. The work at home adjustment was not as difficult as I thought. I think the difficult part for me was having the children at home when they were quarantining. That is the voice of Jennifer Jones, known as JJ around the office, a media supervisor at Fitzgo and mom of three. It took her about six months for her and her family to find a routine that worked for them, but it wasn't easy. In addition to media supervisor and mom, JJ was now wearing a third hat 
as Classroom Monitor. I mean, thank God for understanding clients, <laughs> understanding supervisors. I mean, I'd have dogs barking in the background. I'd have kids crying. My child, my, my daughter was just born. She wasn't even a year old when COVID hit. And when I tell you the adjustment period for that was sort of like, I, I felt like I was apologizing every 15 minutes, like, sorry, I'm so sorry. And they're like, we get it. Relax. It's okay. There's one moment in particular where things got especially hard for JJ as she was on a tightrope juggling motherhood and work life at the same time. If you're a parent, you may have had this scene play out in your own home. I'm going to be very, I'm going to have a, a very honest mommy moment for any parent out there, mommy and dads, for anyone who had to work in quarantine time with their kids. I have... <laughs> God bless my son. I love him. But when he got an iPad, he started recording everything. So I'm in a meeting and we have a 110 pound press a canario dog. He's trying to get out of the, the back door to go out. The kids are supposed to be in class, which I didn't realize my son was just on his tablet, not paying attention. But I was, I was so focused on my meeting. And then my daughter is crying. The baby is crying. And I had, I literally, in the video, I am telling someone in the meeting, excuse me, hold on one second. I press the mute button. I stand up and I look at everyone in the room and I'm like, stop, just stop. And I think everyone kind of looked at me like, you know, with that, with that look like, oh man, she's serious. The dog sat down immediately. <laughs> The baby looks up from, like, literally in mid-cry, just looks at me. And everyone's just like, okay. Then my daughter, who was six, seven at the time, gets up. She lets the dog out. She's like, okay, one. Then she goes to the baby. She's like, what do you need? <laughs> She's like, mommy, did I help? And I'm like, oh, my God, I did it. I yelled at my kids. It's so bad. Um, but then... I got back in the meeting. Everyone was good. And I'm like, my son shows me the video after that. And I'm like, oh, I did that. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'd like felt like apologizing over and over to them. I'm like, I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> but that was an overwhelming moment that I was like, what do I do except yell at everyone? I don't know how to fix this. <laughs> so I, I, I had one of those moments. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine having to, if everything, your entire life is now confined to one one place. And if you're a mom with younger kids, it's almost like it's confined to one room to make sure you can see everybody. To make sure you can see everybody. Yes. And that's what it was. We we were in a smaller home at the time. And it was, it was the the room where you're you can see into the kitchen, you can see into the living space. We didn't I didn't have an office at the time. So I'd set up like a little corner and I could see the whole, pretty much the whole first floor. And that's exactly what it was. We were just in there together, everyone just kind of fighting for attention, fighting to just to get what they need to get done. And with me being in charge of it all, everyone was needing me at the moment and I couldn't. And and trying not to relay that to a client was just so difficult. And I remember being in that moment where I was like, get through the get through the meeting. Don't freak out. Put a happy face on. They'll never know what's happening in the background. You're on mute. And then when I had to speak, I knew at that moment I was like, I'm not going to get through my talking points. I need to say something to the family. So that's when I said, excuse me one second. 
and then just had that moment. And they were like, it's okay. We're good. You're fine. (laughs) Again, understanding. I was like, oh my gosh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I can only imagine the silence that the rest of the house, just quiet for the rest of the day. (laughs) It was. And like I said, I felt like I was just apologizing the rest of the night. I mean, it was just one of those moments you never want to have to have with your kids because it's not their fault. Again, we're all in this together, but in their in their adolescence, in their innocence, they're like, oh, we're home with mom. Like, it's it's a day out of school when we were supposed to be online, and then they were letting kids out earlier than normal, but we won't get in that. They were like, sign off, sign off at one. Like, what? I've got five more hours of work. What do you mean? <laughs> there were countless stories like JJ's. And that's if you were lucky enough to, one, work at a company that allowed you flexibility to balance work and parenting duties, and two, live in a district that offered decent remote learning options. Of course, we can't talk about remote work and parenting without talking about the so-called she session. It's a topic that I wrote about this time last year. It was the first ever economic recession that impacted more women than men. A she session means women, particularly those with school-aged children, are leaving the workforce, devastating diversity initiatives and setting the issue of gender equality back by generations. Politico reported that in September of 2020 alone, right around the time that school starts, more than 860,000 women had dropped out of the workforce. The number of men who left their jobs in the same month? Just 160,000. Some advertising agencies started rolling out measures to allow flexibility for moms and caregivers, including addressing mental health struggles and creating open spaces for vulnerable conversations. At Fitsco, there were what JJ called jam sessions, where folks grouped together, including a group of working moms. It was a space where they could literally just talk. So in that moment, it was where we were like, oh, you're dealing with that too? Oh my gosh, that's, oh my, what did you do? What was your solution? And we bounced off of each other and we sort of supported each other. And I think it was the fact that we are in the same place, maybe a different department, but basically doing the same thing under the same circumstances. And I think sometimes finding a resource is not always, it's not always about getting online and Googling something. I think sometimes when you know someone and you know that they're sharing an experience the same as you, you kind of trust them more. You're kind of like, well, you know, how do you feel about this? And we were kind of able to just really release a little with one another at the same time, support one another. And I, I'm really thankful to Fitzgo for that. For some people, COVID-19 caused problems that they had to fix, like parenting while maintaining a full-time job. For others, it was fixing problems, like eliminating a long commute. In my conversation with Bryce, he told me that traffic really takes a toll on how much time he could spend with his family. On several traffic reports, you'll find that Atlanta typically falls within the top 10 cities with the worst congestion. And if you're looking for public transportation as a workaround, Don't. Options are limited and won't always get you where you need to go. When the pandemic lockdown pushed Adland and corporate America at large to more flexible work, those family bonds got a little bit stronger. At least they did for Bryce. It didn't happen overnight, but I'll let him tell it. I mean, the first couple months we were just, you know, 
<laughs> we hated each other. Uh, just because we had never been put in that situation before. And everybody's stressed out and the world's ending. And, you know, that's all you hear on the news. And, and it was it was a scary time. And then once everything, I guess, stayed scary, you know, <laughs> uh, and it normalized a little bit, then it... Um, it brought us, I think, closer together. And I know my wife and my kids better than I ever did. And they know me. I think back when I was a kid, you know, my dad went to work. He was home at 6.30. We sat, we would, well, we didn't, we didn't sit down and eat dinner a whole lot. But he, you know, he would eat, watch TV and go to bed, you know. But now I'm, I was able to be home with my kids for X amount of time. Understand how they, that, I guess that this is one cool thing, is that I understood when getting into school and everything, how they learn, uh, that was kind of neat. Like my my kids are to- to- polar opposites of each other. My son Sebastian, he's, he's ten now. I mean, he's super smart and he gets straight A's. And and uh, he had come. We had moved schools and all that stuff for for different reasons. And he had really struggled with reading for a little bit at his what level he was supposed to be at. And so it was like I'm going to sit down and have him read me a book that never would have happened. Because there was no time. Yeah, absolutely. And that is an incredible experience, kind of being able to watch that growth happen in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in real time. Yeah, it wasn't like, uh, you know, you're at work and, you know, it gets a progress report and it's like, oh, well, how did this happen? No, I, I got to watch it and um, and participate in, in, in it. And um, that was special to me. That was one of those things where it was like, you, that's something you can't buy. You know, that's, that's one of those things where... Either you participate, and, and it's fleeting, like it's gone. Like that's, that will never happen again. So it's, I'm just glad I was, I'm glad I was there. Bryce told me that if he had to pick between working from the office and working from home, he'd pick working from home. Not to say that Bryce doesn't miss his coworkers and the hustle and the bustle of the office, but you have to consider the perks. That's more time with family, less time in traffic, and even some money saved. For younger staff, that thinking was different. More on that after the break. You remember the show Mad Men? It was a 60s era drama series centered around a character named Don Draper, played by John Hamm. He was struggling to keep his spot in the dog-eat-dog world of Madison Avenue's advertising firms. Advertising is based on one thing. Happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. Mad Men was all about the heyday of advertising. It was also Eric Arena's idea of what life at an ad agency would be like. Eric is an associate in media planning at Fitzco. He only started working at the Atlanta agency last May and was looking forward to a return to the office. Eric graduated college in 2021, meaning his career in advertising started during the pandemic. For him, team meetings and water cooler talk happened over messaging systems and conference calls. In the months leading up to Fitzco's reopening, a few employees voluntarily worked out of the office, including Eric. I asked him what it was like and why he was so eager to go back. Throughout the year, there were a couple of times where I actually went in office and I got a little taste of what it actually feels like to work in there. But just from the stories that I've heard, 
it, it's nothing compared to actually having like the full office being there. It's a completely different environment, complete different workflow. You don't have to wait to like chat somebody on Microsoft Teams and wait for them to respond. It's like you can just talk to them over like um over the table. So it's it's something that I look forward to um, getting into because the only perception in my idea of the office life is Mad Men. I'm not sure you've ever seen it, but um, that's like what my perception is of the actual office life. And um, just from the stuff that I've heard people at the office talk about, it's a it's a great experience to actually be there and be working with everybody in person. What would you describe as the full agency experience? One of the things you flicked at was like being able to talk to somebody over your shoulder. But what are some of those things that make that experience? I would say just the personal connection that you can establish with people. You can't really, or at least me personally, you can talk to people like through a Zoom call, right? But you can't really get a feel for the person like you would if you were talking to them in person. Um, there's certain things that you can't really do through a computer screen. Like I know a couple of me and a couple of my coworkers here, we actually set up like a 15 minute call on Fridays towards the end of the day. And it's literally a virtual water cooler chat um, where we'll talk like just about whatever it is just for us to catch up. Um, which is something that we had to, I guess, adapt to with this virtual world. But um, we're really much looking forward to getting back into the office and actually having that personal connection and those personal relationships that you can build with people that you may not necessarily be able to do through online for whatever reason, right? While it may not look like a scene from Mad Men, Eric would soon enough get his wish for some of that in-person, shooting the breeze, water cooler chat as Fitzco CEO Dave was planning a return there was a glimmer of hope that things would soon be normal. Conversations were ramping up around the idea of future of work. Phrases like flexible work and hybrid work started buzzing around the industry. By spring 2021, the vaccine was widely available and companies were planning for a fall return to the office, including Fitzco. However, the process of returning to work was a bit bumpier than anyone could have imagined. The first time that I met the Fisco team was at an informal lunch meeting last December, where I learned CEO Dave doesn't like arugula, and back-to-the-office plans were slated for the first week of January. I'd been invited to stop by, have coffee, and see if there was a potential return-to-work story. That lunch meeting is actually what sparked this podcast. It seemed fair enough. COVID numbers were starting to rise, but I and everyone I knew had been fully vaccinated. Booster shots and all. I'd wear my mask. It seemed safe, but then I got an email. Hi, Kamiko. We've made the decision not to return to the office in January. This new variant has taken Georgia by storm. Grady Hospital is already of total diversion. Emory predicts that peak hospitalizations for this surge will occur in late January for Metro Atlanta. And it'll be much worse than the first two, just not as deadly. It's just too risky. We've also canceled the Thursday party. We'll keep you posted. Dave. The idea of getting back to normal was too good to be true. We were now facing a new wave of the pandemic, Omicron, a variant reported to be more virulent and contagious than its predecessor, Delta. Tonight, a nation on edge, with the Omicron variant spreading at an alarming rate. It's now being reported in nearly all 50 states. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death. For yourselves, your families, in the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. Once again, offices were closing down. Holiday parties were canceled or moved to become digital as we braced for more pandemic. 
hoping booster shots and vaccinations would get us through. A few weeks later, I reached out to the Fitzco team, wishing them a happy new year and asking them if return to office plans were still a go. I got an email back. Hi, Kamiko. We haven't made any announcement yet, but I believe we'll be back February 8th. Stay tuned. Dave. And then another email. We've decided that February 15th is the first day back. If that changes, I'll let you know. Dave. So the new target date became February 15th. And after two years of remote work, that meant first day jitters. Mixed emotions for many. COVID cases and hospitalizations in January were the highest that they'd been since the beginning of the pandemic. By February, Omicron still loomed, and there was no doubt that we'd see more variants arise at some point. But at the same time, more than half of the American population had received a primary series of COVID-19 vaccine. A week before that February 15th opening date, I asked JJ, Eric, and Bryce how they were feeling. Given that you guys are going back into the office soon, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts around how are you feeling about that in-person return? Are there any like concerns about health risks or safety or anything like that? Um, going back into the office is not, I'm not very hesitant or cautious about it. I've actually been a few times now. It hasn't been the full office, the full agency, um, But as I've gone back in, I've noticed that there are lots of things set up and I'm a cautious person. So we've got sanitizing stations. We've got a temperature check. So with that, I feel very confident. I feel good about it. You know, a selfish part of me is excited to see everyone. The other part of me is that I don't know people's personal choices. I myself have been vaccinated, got the third booster, The cautious side of me is thankful for all the precautions that are being taken. The other side of me is that, you know, hopefully everyone comes in with the right mindset, the the right frame of mind. Um, I don't know everyone's personal views on it. And what I hope is that people just take into consideration if you if you feel a certain way, just be be kind about it. I feel like right now at this stage where it's at. It's, it's kind of the normal thing to to just have to deal with that wherever you go, going out to eat, going to the grocery store. Like it's it's part of our um, day-to-day lives at this point. So um, the protocols that Fisco has had have really, I guess, put my mind at ease when it comes to actually being in person and around other people, um, especially during COVID times. I can't say that I'm like, let's go, you know, I'm, 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 I can't. Um, and that would be, I would be lying if I said that, and I'm not going to do that. So, um, but we'll see. I mean, I, it's going to be great to see everybody's faces. It's going to be great to, uh, it, I mean, it's going to be cool to go to lunch with your friends. You know, it's going to be cool. It's, it's going to be great if we can go to lunch with our friends. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I guess we'll just, we'll just see. Um, and I hope it, I hope it goes well. Next week on The Return, we'll go back into the office with the Fitzco team to catch up in person with a few of the folks we talked to in this episode and meet a few new ones. This is your host, Kamiko McCoy. Until next time. The Return is brought to you by Digiday. This podcast was written and reported by me, Kamiko McCoy, and produced and edited by Sarah Patterson. <laughs>